Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, We are reading Mark's Gospel together, and we're at the place in the story where Jesus is in Jerusalem for what will be his final days before the crucifixion. And last week we talked about a group of of heavy hitters that came to Jesus to try to silence him in front of the people by undercutting his credentials. And if you were here, you might remember that that story ended with those men in fear trying to figure out a way to arrest Jesus without making it look painfully obvious that they were railroading him. Well, we're going to look at the first part of that plan this morning. So I'm going to read from Mark 12 for us, verses 13 through 27. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Mark 12. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to him, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, And they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this word that we've read and heard together, and um, we pray that the thing that we just sang together would be true in this moment, that we would delight to search out your wondrous ways in it, even if maybe right now we're not inclined towards that. Meet every one of us in the places where we find ourselves this morning, those of us who are ready to hear and those of us who aren't, those of us who feel bored or distracted, those of us who aren't sure why we're here. Meet every one of us and show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we pray it in his name. Amen. 
Well, uh, Anton Chekhov, the, the great Russian short fiction writer and playwright, he articulated a dramatic principle that has served all kinds of artists and writers of every stripe ever since. Uh, he didn't make it up, but he articulated it really well. And I'm th I think about this principle all of the time when I'm watching a movie or reading a book, sometimes even think of it when I'm writing a sermon. This principle is referred to as Chekhov's gun, and the basic idea of it is that every part of a story should be relevant to the whole story. So here's how he expressed that. I'm gonna read it to you, and when I read it to you, you'll know why it was called Chekhov's gun. This is, this is the principle. Remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not gonna be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. And I think that's, that's a pretty great articulation. And you know, don't get me wrong, I think lots of stories are served by red herrings and MacGuffins, but for the most part, Chekhov has put his finger on something that makes the best stories and the best writing coherent and lean and tense. And Mark, the gospel writer, he knew this principle like the back of his hand. The first line in that story that we just read together is a callback. It is a callback to chapter three of Mark's gospel where Mark provocatively introduced something into the story. The rifle that Mark introduced in chapter three is being taken off the wall and it is being aimed at Jesus and it is about to go off. Now we talked together uh, about Mark three way back in November of last year. I don't expect anyone to really remember it, but it was there way back in the beginning way back when Jesus started out in Galilee and his popularity was becoming unavoidably obvious. He healed a man on the Sabbath and he did it in a synagogue. And when he did it, he said this, these famous words, he said, the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, most people there didn't really have any idea what Jesus was saying, but there were some guys there who did know what Jesus meant. And that's when Mark pointed to the rifle hanging on the wall. He said the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And now here we are, these two groups, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they have not been mentioned together at all from that moment until right now when they stride up to Jesus together and they take that rifle off the wall. Mark says they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, and that begs the question, who is the they that sent these two groups? Well, if you were here last week, you know who it was. It was the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. Together, they had a lock on every aspect of the common life of God's people. They had fearfully confronted Jesus. They felt deeply threatened by him. They come to him and ask him, by what authority does he do all these things, in particular that big thing that he had done in the temple? 
But Jesus silenced them with one well-worded question and one beautiful parable. And so in their fear, they deploy the Pharisees and the Herodians, who we, as readers know, have been plotting Jesus' destruction for a long time now, years even. And so what I didn't say about these two groups back in November is worth thinking about now, and that is that these are a very strange, this is a very strange alliance. These are strange bedfellows. I mean, on the one hand, you have the Pharisees. These are ardent nationalist laymen who hate just about every aspect of the current political situation of God's people, most especially the fact that they are being ruled over by Rome. On the other hand, you have the Herodians. The Herodians are loyalists. They're, they're hangers-on connected to the royal court of the Roman puppet king, Herod. Under normal circumstances, these two groups would have nothing to do with each other, but under the banner of Jesus' destruction, all bets are off. So they greet Jesus with flattery. And we know it's flattery because Jesus later on flags it as hypocrisy. This is what they say, teacher, we know that you're true, and we know that you don't care about anyone's opinion, and we know that you are not swayed by appearances. The irony of this moment, of course, is that all of those things are true about Jesus, and they are true in the best possible way we can imagine them to be true. You know, I want to talk about that for a minute. I mean, we, we all know people who don't care what other people think. We all know people who don't care how they look to others, and we know that that's the way that it is because generally they just don't care about other people. But that is not Jesus. His love for others is disarming. His love for others is often unsettling to everyone in the story. All you have to do is just read the Gospels. Just pick one of them and read it through from beginning to end, and you will see. Jesus never manipulates other people. Jesus never uses other people. Jesus never looks at others for validation. He does not use them to reflect back to him desperately <laughs> an intact ego. It's obvious he does not need the approval of other people, but at the same time, when he is with people, it's like there is no one else that exists in that moment. They are at the center of his gaze, they are at the center of his affection, they are at the center of his attention. Jesus speaks and acts not out of his need for others, but out of his love for them. And when I hear that, when I think about that, when I read about that, I think to myself, man, that is how I would like to live my life. And church, here's the truth. That is how every one of us in here, every single one of us in here, that is how we have been created to live. That is the life that we have been made for. But sin, our, our own sin, the sin of others against us, it bends us in on ourselves. One of you here at Covenant wrote so beautifully and so honestly about this this week that I had to ask if it was okay to share it. This is what 
one of you said this week about this thing, about being bended in on ourselves. I don't know what it means to dream bigger than what people think of me or how much I'm admired. Wow. I don't know what it means to dream bigger than what people think of me or how much I'm admired. I don't know about you, but when I try that sentence on for size, it fits a lot of the time. Maybe you know what that's like. We use other people to prop ourselves up. We use other people as the barometer of our own self-worth. What we say, what we do, what we share is often determined by the algorithm of our desperate need and not by self-giving love. Well, church, I have really, really good news for people like us. Part of growing up into Jesus is growing up into the way that he loved people. I mean, when we follow Jesus in repentance and faith, we are forgiven of all of that, all of that, that using of others, that over-needing of others. We're forgiven of all of that, but that's not all that following Jesus in repentance and faith means. It means also that we are accepted by God. It means that he loves us. It means that there's nothing we're ever going to do that's going to change that love for us. It means that he is happy to call us his daughters and his sons. It means that Jesus is happy to call us sisters and brothers. And church, that's the realm of acceptance that matters the most to human beings, to people like us. And that is the acceptance that orders every other relationship that we're in. And that means that I don't need to rely on others. I don't need to manipulate others into giving me the radical acceptance that I crave, that I was made for, because I already have it from the maker of all things. And part of growing up in our faith, part of maturing as followers of Jesus is believing that that's true and then ordering our affections and our desires around it, living that out in the flesh and blood of everyday life. When we live that out, when we, we punch through this fear or this need that we have and we actually love others with open hands, you know what that makes us? It makes us free. <laughs> we become free people, free to love, regardless of whether or not I get anything out of it. That's the life we've been created for. That is the life that we have been made for. That is how Jesus loves. And if we follow him, we are being grown up into him. I'm telling you, even those Pharisees, even those Herodians, Jesus knows that that's the life they have been made for too but they are caught up in the fear of unbelief. They are so messed up by their fear. They are so threatened by Jesus that they have to eliminate that threat. And so they ask him this loaded question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, that, that might not seem like a big deal to us, but that's only because we don't live in first century Judea. If we did, it would be a big deal to us. 
They're talking about the Roman poll tax. It's a tax that was instituted sometime around the time when Jesus was born. And when it was first levied by Rome, a guy named Judas led a revolt, a violent revolt against paying the tax. He was quickly captured and executed by the Romans. It was a wildly unpopular tax, not just because it took a bite out of people's purses, but because it was a bitter reminder that Rome was over them. So these guys think, man, we have got Jesus on the ropes now because if he sides with the tax, he's going to look to the people, you know, to be just another weak capitulator to Rome, not worth following. But if he sides against the tax, well, then these Roman soldiers stationed in the garrison here at the temple could be alerted to this young revolutionary's presence, and they can do with him whatever they please. So Jesus carves a brilliant line between those two positions, and he reframes the whole question. First, first he says, somebody give me a denarius. That's the coin that was used to pay the tax. It was about a day's wage, and it had an image of Tiberius Caesar on it. And underneath the image of Tiberius Caesar, it had this inscription, Son of the Divine Augustus. A lot of people in Jesus' day, probably some of the people who are asking him this question, they thought the Tiberian denarius was idolatrous. It has this graven image on it, talking about how he's the son of God. They wouldn't even carry it. <laughs> and so in asking for it, Jesus makes it clear he doesn't have one on his person. <laughs> it's a pretty subtle move and a good one. But even better, one of his questioners, probably one of the Herodians that is there, just happens to have one. So he gives it to Jesus. Jesus takes the coin in his hand, holds it up, says, whose likeness is this? Whose inscription is this? And they say to him, Caesar's. So Jesus says, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's not the yes or no they were hoping for. It's a statement about the coin that Jesus is holding in his hand. That money, in fact, did belong to Caesar. Every denarii in the empire was considered his, part of his wealth. And so Jesus is saying, you could certainly give Caesar his stuff back. You could certainly give back the stuff that belongs to him. It's fine, give it right back to him. But Jesus wants it to be clear that there is much, much more to the story than that. Not that anyone was asking Jesus, but he adds, and render to God the things that belong to God. So Jesus first is reminding everyone that there is a power that is greater than Caesar's power. That would have been really hard for people to buy, really hard for people to believe in that moment in time. And Jesus is saying, trust me, there is a power that is way greater than Caesar's power. He may style himself to be divine, but everyone knows that's a joke. They're just afraid to say it. There is one to whom even Caesar will have to pay up one day. That's who Jesus is talking about, the God who doesn't need poll taxes, who doesn't need income taxes, who doesn't need property taxes, who doesn't need sweetened beverage taxes, the God who is not short on cash. Because, as the psalm writer said this morning, the earth is his 
and all of the fullness of the earth is his. Everything is his. So Jesus, if he doesn't need our cash, what do we render to God? Well, that's the second thing Jesus is doing. He's making us wonder who, who bears God's image, who bears God's inscription. It's us. Every one of us here. Every one of us here has been created in his image and we bear his inscription. We have been made in this world to reflect his justice, his goodness, his beauty, his mercy, his peace, his grace, his love. We have been made to reflect all of who God is out into the world, into every particular place that we find ourselves in. Yes, that image is tarnished, it's broken, it's bent in on itself. Whatever language we wanna use, yes, we know that that's true and that's why Jesus is there doing what he's doing. That's why Jesus is, as he puts it, giving his life as a ransom for many so that people like you and me can have the image of God slowly restored in us to the beauty, to the glory that it was first created in. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension give to people like me and you. That's what it means for him to be the firstborn of a brand new creation. And so even though no one was asking Jesus about this, he wanted them to know and he wanted us to know that the rendering that matters the most, the rendering that orders every other rendering in our lives, is the one that we render to God. It's a call to faith, really. <laughs> Jesus can't help himself. And I don't know exactly what Mark means when he says that they marveled at him when he said it. I don't know, were they angry? Were they surprised? Were they stupefied? Were they curious? Did they feel some pang of softening, some crack around the edge of the stony heart? I don't know. But what is it that we feel? What is it that I believe, that you believe? Well, as soon as that conversation ends, another one begins. A group named the Sadducees come up to Jesus. The Sadducees were members of the priestly aristocracy. They're wealthy, they are deeply conservative people. They only accept the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, to them. Everything else is just a dangerous innovation. And most relevant, relevantly for this moment, Mark makes sure that we know that they do not believe in the resurrection. Now my guess is that they had heard that Jesus did. <laughs> Maybe they had heard that he had spoken once, twice, three times about his own impending resurrection. And this is absurd to them. And so they come up to Jesus with this absurd conundrum intended to highlight the absurdity in Jesus' teaching. It's another way to try to undercut his authority in front of the people. So this conundrum they come to Jesus with is based on this law that's often referred to as Leverite marriage. It says that if a man dies and he doesn't have an heir, that man's brother should take the widow in order to produce an heir and therefore protect the family name and the inheritance of the family. 
Now, very few people actually practiced this in Jesus' day. That's not relevant to the Sadducees. So they asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, think about this. Consider this little thing. There's a woman, and her first husband died, and he didn't give her an heir. No problem, Jesus. This man has six other brothers, so the next one up marries her. But sure enough, he doesn't produce an heir. He dies, and against all odds, she ends up being married to all seven of the brothers, Jesus. And then this poor lady dies herself. So, Jesus, in the resurrection, when they all rise again, (laughs) whose wife is she going to be? might seem like a strange question to us, maybe a silly one, but they were serious. And Jesus answers them with utmost seriousness. In front of everyone who's listening, he says to them, you don't understand the scriptures and you don't get the power of God. Wow, he goes after them, not on their weak points, but at what they believe to be their strongest points. Jesus knows, well, they only accept the Torah, so he picks a passage from the Torah to talk about. Jesus says, hey, when when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, he said, I am the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. Of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all really long dead by the time Moses and God spoke at the burning bush. But he didn't say at that moment, I was their God. He says, I am their God. So Jesus says he's not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. They didn't just fade to black and drop out of existence. They are still around waiting the resurrection on the last day. Now listen, church, you need to know that what Jesus is saying here goes way beyond parsing verb tenses. He is saying, once you enter into a relationship with the living God, you have entered into a relationship that not even death can nullify. Death will not outstrip it. His promise goes through the grave and out onto the other side in new life. And Jesus says that new life is something you're not even going to be able to really get your head and your heart and your hands around. It's hardly possible. That's what Jesus means when he says when they rise from the dead, there's not going to be a bunch of weddings. They're going to be like angels in heaven. It's Jesus' way of saying that the resurrection life isn't just some continuation of the present life with a couple of little tweaks. He's saying no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no heart has been able to even begin to comprehend what God has prepared in the resurrection life for his people. The taxonomy of this fallen world is insufficient to approach it, to be fully briefed on it would be to risk having your heart fully burst at the joy of it. Better to see now through a glass darkly and then face to face. So listen, when Jesus says to them, you are quite wrong, he's not trying to close down their opportunity. He's not trying to close down the opportunity of any of us here who might believe in this moment that what we see is what we get and that's all there is to existence. 
he is unsettling their worldview at their strongest points <laughs> in order to invite them into a different worldview, the real one, the true story of the world. I think maybe Jesus knows that that conversation is a placeholder. It's a placeholder for a conversation these guys are going to have to have later in the week, Sunday afternoon of that very week, when the really scary, really strange stories start to filter back into Jerusalem on the lips of the women who loved him and stayed with him the longest. You know what the Sadducees are going to have to say then? They're going to be confronted with this conversation. They're going to say, those women are saying that Jesus is alive. <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> do we believe? And if we do, do we live as if the resurrection is true? Do we render our very lives to the God of the living. Let me pray for us. Father, we're amazed and honestly sometimes surprised at the way that Jesus turns these um, attempts to undercut him, attempts to have him be destroyed into teaching us some of the most important things that we can ever know in this world. And so we ask, Father, that you would help us to see and to hear and to believe. And we pray this for our good and the good of the broken world around us. In Christ's name, amen.